welcomed this Sydney Ideas panel on the topic, Money Talks, Divesting from Fossil Fuels. My name is Tanya Fiedler, and I'm a lecturer in the Discipline of Accounting here at the University of Sydney, and I'll be chairing this event. But before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which we meet. I'm chairing this event from the lands of the Daramurugal people of the Eora Nation, but I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which our speakers and you, the audience, reside, as well as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this event. It is upon their ancestral lands that our homes and workplaces are built. So as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, research and practices here today, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Now, we have an exciting lineup of uh, speakers here with us today, and I'll introduce each of these briefly in turn. So first we have Alistair Fraser. He's a lecturer in the School of Economics here at Sydney. Now, Alistair has direct experience in divestments, having as a student previously led the successful divestment campaign at the University of British Columbia. Then we have Rachel Deans, campaigner at Market Forces, a shareholder adv advocacy group. Then we have Phil. Um, Phil is Director of Finance and Business Affairs at University College London. And for those of you that aren't aware of this, UCL have only recently divested themselves. So I'm sure Phil will be able to bring direct insights on the experience of divesting from the inside. And then finally, we have Keith, Keith Rovers, partner in Minter Elson's Corporate and Capital Markets Group. Now, in this role, Keith heads up the sustainable finance team. So I'm hoping Keith will be able to bring our discussion, uh, some of the insights he has gained around both the risks and opportunities emerging as a consequence of climate change. But before we progress to our panellists, I'd like to invite Alison Estlake, a student representative from Fossil Free Sydney provide an opening statement and to set the tone for this event. After all, it is Alison's generation and our children's that will bear the fruit or otherwise of our endeavours here tonight. So Alison, over to you. Thanks, Tanya. When students call for climate action, we are not asking because we like to see boxes ticked on a list of our demands. We are not asking because the lack of green branding bothers us. We are asking because our lives and futures are on the line. For six years now, students have been calling for the university to divest from fossil fuels. In a 2014 student referendum, 80% voted for the university to divest from companies whose primary business is the extraction, processing, and transportation of fossil fuels. For the past six years, in spite of the clearly and decisively articulated demands of students, we have been met with excuses and equivocation. And at the same time, over these past six years, we have seen climate change feedback processes accelerate. Already in 2020, we have seen hot and dry conditions spark fires that have burnt through some of the planet's most valuable carbon sinks. We have seen also an Arctic heat wave that has accelerated the melting of Arctic ice, causing an acceleration also of albedo loss. This is the trajectory that our planet is on. Without ambitious climate action, without climate justice, this is the future that current and prospective students of the University of Sydney will inherit. This trajectory will not change if companies whose primary business is the extraction, 
processing and transportation of fossil fuels, including companies in which the University of Sydney currently invests, continue to operate and expand. This trajectory will not change if the University of Sydney, apparently an institution of research, science and leadership, continues to lend its credibility and social license to the fossil fuel industry. The current and prospective students of this university know that excuses and equivocation will not protect our futures. What is needed is leadership. We are calling on the university to use its position and its financial power to take a stand on our side. Divestment from fossil fuels is just one of many bold actions which will be needed to change the trajectory we are on. But for the University of Sydney, as the launch of its sustainability strategy approaches, it is a critical one. No number of green campus initiatives will erase the knowledge that this university is profiting from the continued success of the fossil fuel industry. No number of green campus initiatives will reverse the effects of the carbon released from the fossil fuels this industry extracts. In the years since the university first rejected student calls for divestment in favour of an approach that allowed it to continue investing in fossil fuel companies, students have grown cynical. Our trust in this institution has eroded. We are no longer watching the decision makers with earnest hope and optimism. Now we are watching with scrutiny. And whether we end up living in a world where the worst impacts of climate change go unmitigated, or one where there is some degree of hope and safety, we will remember if the institution we trusted with our youth was on our side. Thank you. Thank you, Alison, for that sobering reminder of some of the events that we've recently faced and uh, for also putting us on notice. So before we proceed today um, and further to some of the uh, science that Alison has just outlined, I wanted to provide a brief reminder of where the science positions us today. First, it is unequivocal that human activities have caused approximately one degree of global warming above pre-industrial levels. Second, warming from anthropogenic emissions from the pre-industrial period to the present will persist for centuries to millennia. In Australia, there has been a decline since the 1990s of around 11% in April to October rainfall to the southeast. While some rainfall extremes, for example, in Northern Australia, as we experienced last year, are becoming much more intense. And there's also been a long-term increase in extreme fire weather and in the length of the fire season, as we are no doubt all too aware from the events earlier this year. And the science projects that were we to limit warming to one and a half degrees, which is a level most scientists today would argue is no longer attainable, between 70 to 90% of coral reefs will die. Whereas limiting warming to two degrees, which is hopefully where we will land, um, is projected to kill off between 99 and 100% of them. But there is some hope, and surprisingly that hope doesn't come from our governments, uh, but from scientists who are leading us through COVID right now, as well as from markets. So it's on that point that I'd like to turn to our speakers. So Alistair, I might just kick off with you, if I may. Um, so I mentioned before that um, you originally um, 
well, that you attended UBC as a student and um, that you were involved with the divestment campaign there. Can you talk to us something about, about that experience and um, talk to us about your background in this area? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tanya, and thanks, Alison, for, uh, for that powerful introduction there. Um, so so my, my research interests are in carbon emissions and supply chains, and, and that, that, when I was a grad student, led me to get interested in carbon emissions uh, for investments. So starting back in 2013 at UBC, where I was a grad student, uh, I started getting involved with the student and staff uh, climate advocacy efforts on campus. So UBC's ranked number one in the world for the sustainable development goal of climate action. So there's a lot of conversations on campus amongst the students, the staff, the administration on what is climate action, what does it look like, what are we going to do next? And so I've been involved in various roles since 2013, right up until 2019, uh, when the University of British Columbia uh, committed to full fossil fuel divestment. So it was a long series of efforts from staff and students, but they did finally commit to that. And I think for me, one of the sort of the takeaway messages of that was uh, how much I think healthier that process was once the students and staff started speaking with the administration, started understanding each other's perspectives. And so what's really not apparent from UBC's divestment decision is that that was a very collaborative announcement from the students um, as well as the administration. And I just clarify, I was sort of involved with the campaign. My main role was to work on the evidence, work with the Board of Governors, but I, I wouldn't call myself a leader of the, of the campaign myself. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so what, what does divestment actually involve then? Yeah, um, divestment is just the simple shifting of money. So in the case of fossil fuel divestment, that would be shifting out of fossil fuels. People define that in a few different ways, but shifting out of fossil fuels into something else. So divestment advocates don't typically recommend a particular place for those investments to be shifted to. The important thing is it's not like a withdrawal of money out of your super or out of the endowments, just shifting, simple shifting within it. And there's a lot of evidence that this can be done without any negative impact to the returns. But, and how does this actually relate to climate science? Yeah, it's sort of like, what, like why divestment? Um, there are a variety of reasons, I think, for sort of different people. Um, I think really a core one that was behind where a lot of these calls originally came from and remains that way is, uh, so that, for an example, the United Nations issued this production gap report recently where they're illustrating how our current plans of extracting fossil fuels, we currently plan to extract far more than we can if we're going to achieve a two degree Celsius type target. So another example is that the significant majority of fossil fuels, generally considered well over 75%, significant majority of fossil fuel reserves would need to remain in the ground if we're going to achieve a 2C type target. So we face this kind of like contradiction or tension here between investing in companies whose business model is the extraction of fossil fuels. And if we're investing in them, we're hoping that extraction continues because that's how we're going to make money. There's kind of a contradiction between that and the need to keep those fossil fuels in the ground. That's the core, uh, I would argue, is the core logic behind divestment. Um, but I think, of course, there's many reasons for other people. So financial risk is one people bring up a lot. Um, these you know, fossil fuels are not a growth industry. A lot of these companies, it's predicated upon uh, us not achieving Paris. And so maybe we should remove our investments from them. It's just too risky to continue. Uh, for others, I think Alison spoke to that. It's about moral leadership some degree, demonstrating uh, what we are as an institution or where we're going to go. We know that we need to keep most fossil fuels in the ground. So I think, you know, for many people, for taking Paris seriously, if we're taking net zero 
seriously, then it seems a, a pretty reasonable first step would be to not be investing in companies whose business model is predominantly the extraction of fossil fuels. Thanks for that, Alistair. Um, I might move on to Rachel. So, Rachel, you work with a lot of people who are, I suppose, supporting and, and involved in divestment campaigns, so people such as Alistair would have been. Um, so, and, and you work for an organisation called Market Forces who are a shareholder advocacy group. Now, there might be people uh, listening tonight who don't actually understand what shareholder advocacy means, what it is. Can you just explain a little bit what Market Forces does um, and how they got started and why? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Tanya. Um, and I also just want to acknowledge that I'm on here on Wurundjeri country and pay respects to um, elders past, present and future. Uh, so Market Forces was started seven years ago. Um, by Julian Vincent. He worked at Greenpeace for seven years. And during that time, he found that um, the most successful campaigns were campaigns that shifted money. Um, so Market Forces really works with different stakeholders, so shareholders, customers, um, community members, to ensure that our money is not investing in um, fossil fuels and other things that are really destructive to the environment. And there's many different ways of doing that, but a lot of our campaigns, you know, focus on working with those stakeholders to ensure that those shifts happen. Okay. So the tactics that you actually get involved in, maybe just talk us through Unisuper. So if, if you use them as a case study, how are you actually, how did you get them to take their more recent position and what do you still hope to achieve? And how are you going to, how are you going to do that? Great question. Thanks so much. Um, so we actually were approached by a lot of Unisuper members um, last year who were quite frustrated that Unisuper continued to fund fossil fuel industries. So about 10% of their total, you know, their total, total portfolio um, was invested in, in coal, oil and gas. And so we launched a campaign at the start of this year asking Unisuper to divest from fossil fuels. Within six weeks, 10,000 members had, had signed on to this open letter calling on Unisuper to divest from fossil fuels. So, um, you know, we used that momentum and coordinated with folks around the country. Unisuper had an event they were sponsoring, the Australia Universities Conference um, in Canberra. And professors and, and other uni super members um, were out the front and handed out flyers and, you know, drew attention to this. The same day we had a ad in the Australian Financial Review asking uni super to divest from fossil fuels. So we were really planning a whole lot of offline actions with people during that time. And then COVID happened and we kind of had to change tack a little bit, as you do. But really, uh, there's been a lot of pressure from uni super members. The way Unisuper is structured is there's um, a board, a consultative committee that talk to their members. Um, and so we worked with members to contact the consultative committee to get them to, to bring it up with the board. And there was actually a, a meeting recently where um, the information came out that Unisuper had actually divested from thermal coal companies in Australia. They didn't come out publicly with that but we were able to, to follow up and, and that's how it came out. So that's a really good first step, um, but that's not enough. We want, and members want Unisuper to divest from coal, oil and gas as well, all industries that are just not compatible 
with, with a safe climate. Okay, thank you very much for that. So can people become, can the lay person become involved with the work that you're doing at Market Forces and if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, and honestly, our campaigns don't work unless people get involved. So, you know, it's not possible without without members and other people taking action. Um, so if you are a uni super member, you can sign up at uh, unisuperdivest.org. If you're with other super funds, um, we have option to contact them as well. And we have templates and things that you can use if you go to marketforces.org.au slash campaign slash super, I'm happy to, to put it in the chat. And if you're interested in, in becoming more involved, I'm really happy. I mean, you can sign up as a volunteer and we'll contact you um, or feel free to email me at rachel at marketforces.org.au. Okay, thanks, Rachel. Okay, I might move on to you, Phil. And, and the reason for that is because you're, you're sort of sitting on the other side. Um, you've been... Uh, in your role at UCL, um, approached by um, people such as Alison, who we heard from at the beginning, from Fossil Free UCL, or activist groups such as Market Forces. So could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about, um, first of all, University College London. How does it compare to an Australian university? Um, and why did, why did they choose to go down the divestment path? Yeah, thanks, Tanya. And um, I'm really delighted to be have the opportunity to participate today. Um, yeah, UCL is one of the larger universities in the UK, about 42,000 students, 13,000 staff, and total revenues of around uh, $2.9 billion um, equivalent. And um, we manage uh, an endowment which uh, currently is of, uh, of the order of around $375 million dollars and um, the focus of the fossil free UCL campaign has been to encourage us to divest from fossil fuels in respect of the investments that we manage directly. Interestingly and uh, listening to Rachel and Alistair that the focus in the UK really hasn't been on the on the big pension schemes actually and there is a national university pension scheme in the UK, um, which I guess is the equivalent of your uni super, and uh, they haven't moved to divestment um, uh, at this point in time. The, the, the Fossil Free UCL campaign has been active since about 2015, so for about five years, uh, I would judge. And through that time, we've been um, meeting with them, uh, talking to them. Uh, they've met with myself, they've met with the vice chancellor, they've met with the members of the investment committee, They've also we've also arranged roundtable meetings with our investment managers who manage our uh, uh, endowment uh, on our behalf. We've always had uh, an ethical investment policy, and we have gradually been taking steps towards um, a more active stance in relation to climate change and um, uh, and moving in the direction of uh, divestment. But uh, it wasn't until uh, the end of 2019, October 2019, when our governing body, our council. Uh, finally took the decision to fully divest from fossil fuels at that at that point in time. Um, and we, that coincided with the launch of our sustainability strategy, um, which obviously offers a, a much broader positioning of the university in relation to sustainability issues. And, and also along with that, a commitment to publicising our portfolio of investments, um, which we do now. I, I understand that um, the announcement was made in parallel with your sustainability strategy. But was there resistance previously? And if so, how was that overcome? Yeah, there, there, there has been resistance, uh, Tanya. As I say, we've gradually been taking, taking steps towards um, a, a more active stance in relation to climate change in the way in which we manage our investments. 
Uh, but And we have debated during that time on uh, several occasions the possibility of fully divesting. Uh, the reasons we haven't, uh, or the reasons typically that um, uh, why there is resistance, uh, uh, are in four areas, really. One is a concern that it would damage our broader interactions with the energy industry, and in particular, uh, research activity. Uh, secondly, a view that um, it's unlikely to have a sufficiently positive impact in terms of uh, persuading companies to shift their, um, their, their, their um, business base and that, and that active shareholder activism would be a, a more positive and productive stance for us. The third is that it would damage performance of the portfolio by limiting the range of investable stocks. We would damage the um, uh, uh, our achievement of yield and management of risk in relation to that. And then finally, that there would be a limited number of investment managers who would be able to effectively manage a bespoke portfolio for us. So that, those are really the, the typical arguments that, uh, that were put forward. But, but, but eventually, we, um, we were able to address all of those. And by, by actually, by the time we had, we took the decision back at the back end of 2019 to fully divest, we, we, our investment managers had largely exited their positions in relation to energy industry stocks anyway just by virtue of the fact that it became increasingly apparent that they didn't offer good long-term secure financial returns. Okay, so then it's, I'm imagining from what you're saying that the impact financially hasn't been that great or has been negative, has been positive? Yeah, so we, as part of the, the, the run-up to making that decision, Tanya, we did commission some uh, advisors to give us, give us, have a look historically at our own performance would our investments have performed better or worse with or without fossil fuels in our portfolio? And also to try and give us a, a view as to what was likely to happen in the future, which is very difficult, of course. And, and the evidence suggested that the impact uh, had been uh, negligible, either, either, either in a positive or a negative direction. Uh, and that's generally been our experience since then. I mean, we haven't, to be fair, been tracking it very closely um, because we've made the decision and that's it. We're not going back. So we're not actually really inter that interested in what, what the impact has been in terms of our investments. But it's hard to say that it's had any, any discernible impact in terms of our investment performance. Is there any reasonable justification for a public university to have investments in fossil fuels or other harmful in industries? So over to you, Phil. I suppose that's putting you in the spot a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I think, the, the, as I say, the arguments that typically uh, were, were put forward, and, and which are still strongly held, I should say, within UCL, not everyone's converted uh, to, to the idea that, um, that divestment is the, right, uh, is the right thing for us to do. Uh, and the arguments have been uh, largely around the question of whether we have more influence as shareholders over the way in which the, um, those companies are, are run than we do if we are effectively not shareholders and therefore we lose a seat and lose, it, lose, it, lose the degree of influence that we've had. And it's not, a, it's not, it's not the case that shareholder activism is, is always ineffective. I mean, there are, there are examples where actually shareholder activism has been effective, particularly around forcing uh, additional disclosure from companies around the the impact that their businesses have and the risks that they're exposed to, but but I think um, you know in the in the end we decided that actually we could we could still have as much influence uh, by virtue of you know being a, a, a university with an established reputation, an active portfolio of research activity that's largely focused on encouraging those businesses to shift their business models and that actually the influence we would lose would be um, uh, not significant. Okay, thank you. Might turn to you now, Keith. So could you tell us a little bit more firstly about your role at Minter Ellison and then from that, what you see as the emerging risks for owners of fossil fuel holdings? 
Yes, thanks, Tanya. So I just acknowledge that I'm on uh, Camaragal land this evening and, and pay my respects. So I'm a, a finance partner uh, in Mintrellison. I'm also the pro bono partner. And through those, I have the for profit and the for purpose sector. And we have a responsible business unit that sort of blends the, the two. Uh, and so in that context, I'm doing quite a bit in the, the ESG advisory field, including around climate risk governance. Uh, and that involves talking to, to boards of you know, REITs and uh, super funds and the like around task force for climate related financial disclosures and and how they uh, disclose risk and also looking at fiduciary duty. So Minters in 2016 briefed Noel Hutley QC on the fiduciary duty issue and that came out of some, um, some work we were doing for, for some peak bodies, including uh, the, the Council for Superannuation. And that was to look at whether what were traditionally seen as non-financial factors, so environmental factors, uh, should be considered in the context of fiduciary duties. And the clear evidence that, that came out of, of that research, and there is a separate opinion done only last year, I think, for super fund trustees who have a slightly different fiduciary duty, is that uh, in, in certain circumstances, environmental factors can clearly uh, constitute financial uh, and material risks that need to be considered in the context of fiduciary duties. So in terms of, um, you know, you've, you've looked at the divestment strategy versus the engagement strategy. So Phil clearly articulated that sort of uh, discussion that goes on. And partly that relies upon having a weight of money that you can influence and also actually actively voting that, uh, that influence. So organisations like BlackRock and Vanguard, so you know, the, the big US fund managers manage something like $20 trillion and they're quite um, you know, vocal at the moment in terms of purpose and climate and requiring boards, uh, investee boards to factor into uh, their decision making around those sorts of factors. Whether they then vote that weight of money is another matter. So, so the divestment strategy is quite, or well, it's neat in, in, in a philosophical sense, maybe some, somewhat harder to execute, but in terms of working out where the, the lines are, but they're the, the two sort of uh, strategies that are the discussion points at the moment. You know, um, I think Alistair touched on stranded asset risk. So you can look at this from a climate science perspective and also a money perspective. So clearly, from a money perspective, at some point in terms of transition over the next 20, 30 years, there is going to be, I think Alistair said, 75% of the fossil fuels remaining reserves need to be left in the ground. Uh, so there's a clear stranded asset risk. There's also, there was a, a Woodside, uh, an article on Woodside on the weekend about $200 million tail liability for an oil refinery sitting out in the ocean that um, I think they sold to someone else. So they're, they're shifting the liability, which is an interesting issue in terms of reputational risk for them as well, but also social license. So coming at, at back to risk, there's the, there's the financial performance issue. And it seems over time that on a pure finance level, stranded asset risk, uh, risk and return, you'll be shifting out of, uh, out of fossil fuels. Likewise, social license, you know, brand, reputation, you know, from a university perspective, alignment with values is an interesting sort of reputational social risk. And whilst the student body aren't necessarily members that the, the trustees owe a duty to, they are part of the business model of a university and clearly customer retention and customer 
engagement is such that you would think that um, you know, that would factor and weigh into trustees' uh, decision making, although they, they have a duty to existing members and then also future members. So in terms of um, lobbying and engagement, you know, partly it's up to people to understand where their super money is invested and uh, you know, to, to, to actively uh, engage with their, their superannuation trustees to ensure that they're happy with where the money is going and the, the overall investment strategy. I mean, as Alistair said, you know, if you divest, the money needs to go somewhere else. So it's going either into other equities or into fixed interest or into alternative assets. And there are opportunities in those other areas to make other positive impact. And that's, you know, we, we can talk about that later. I mean, finance theory is about risk return and impact at the end of the day. And, and impact, I think, is over time going to, to, to play a more important factor, uh, particularly when you look at sort of the, the attitudes of millennials and the like that are looking for how that money is used to create positive impact or at least minimise uh, external externalities, negative externalities like climate change. Keith, can I just um, get you to wind back a moment? Because um, you were talking about fiduciary duty and then you spoke about a number of risks, financial risk, reputational risk, um, values, etc. But when you're talking about fiduciary duties, I'm, I'm not sure that everyone understands what these are, but to my mind that would imply also legal risk or risk of litigation. Could you maybe just mm -hmm. go into what fiduciary risk actually means a little bit more? Yes. So if you're a steward of money or a steward of a company, you, you have a primary responsibility to act in the interest of members. Easier said than done because is that current members, future members? What are the interests of members? Can you take non-financial interests into account? So we've had the notion of shareholder primacy in the corporate world that, you know, profits for shareholders, wealth distribution is the primary motivation of, uh, of companies and the like. That, I think, is shifting partly post-GFC and there's been this long debate over the social role of a company for, for hundreds of years. But we're now moving, I think, towards a more stakeholder uh, view of fiduciary duty, which means you can take into account the views of customers and uh, beyond shareholders, customers, regulators, and you saw with the Royal Commission into the financial sector that that pursuit of profit is a, a busted business model because it led to a raft of regulatory breaches and damage to brand and social license and the like. In the context of climate change, you know, CBA had a class action taken out against it for failure to properly and adequately disclose climate uh, risk within its uh, business model. So it, it then went from laggard to, to not world's best, but it, it did a lot of work to get its financial disclosures up to scratch. Uh, REST, the super fund, is being sued at the moment by a member who's a 30-year-old saying when he started asking his super fund about how they were managing climate risk within the portfolio, given he was going to be taking his money out in 40 years, he wasn't happy with the answers, and so has sued them for the failure to properly and adequately manage the, the trust fund in the context of these risks that we're talking about, that whole transition risk. And so, you know, there, there's a number of cases that are on foot. The Commonwealth just got sued in relation with bond issues. So litigation in that sense is often used as a, as a strategic lever to force 
better behaviour, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, there there is a number of organisations that, you know, as part of the task force for climate-related financial disclosures, you're supposed to run a number of scenarios on your business and examine and demonstrate how you're actually transitioning your business to a zero-carbon uh, future. And you know, there's AGL and there's there's a number of organisations in the fossil fuel industry that are making um, steps in that. Whether they're doing it quickly enough is another another matter. Um, and that's partly the, this dialogue. Do you continue to keep your money in them on the basis so that you're then pushing them harder and faster down a particular pathway? Or do you take your money out and say, you know, it's a, it, over time it's going to be stranded asset risk and we're better off deploying that money elsewhere now? Keith, can I just flip it around and ask you then about some of the opportunities. If you can speak to those maybe just in a, in a couple of minutes, but in a way they're almost more important because if we can begin to see the opportunities are much greater than the risks, then I think entities are more, much more likely to act. Yeah, so ESG, you know, if you think about financial data, it's been around for thousands of years in terms of double entry bookkeeper. ESG data has probably been around for 20, 30, 40 years. So... It is getting more sophisticated. The rating agencies, the credit rating agencies have all bought ESG data, analytics and data providers. So that data and the link between ESG performance and financial performance is starting to, to be played out. So it, investing for impact, by that I mean po positive sort of environmental, social. So, you know, you can deploy your money into renewables or you can look at, you know, social impact. And so there's a, a bunch of different financial instruments, um, you know, sustainability-linked loans, green bonds, sustainability-linked uh, bonds and the like. That's not necessarily in the context of, of super, but you know, Monash University and Macquarie University have both issued green bonds for their uh, building infrastructure and the like. So they're looking at how can they raise capital that has a, a green element to it. What can the person who's in the audience do? So we, either with their super or within their organisations, what's one tip that you have for them? Alistair, starting with you. One run-on sentence. Uh, <laughs> ask you know, your super, your university, to demonstrate that they're being responsible investors, to demonstrate that they're, I guess, investing with our future in mind. I think it's now, on the, t it's now uh, the time for, I think, the investing investors to demonstrate that. The burden of proof needs to be on them. And so you can write to them you can, and ask them to show that. Great. Thank you. Rachel. Yes, write to your banks and your super funds um, and if you have time, take even more action because uh, these, these financial institutions um, will change more quickly with your pressure. Phil. Yeah, thanks. So try and argue the case from the point of view of the investors and thinking about what they're trying to achieve and how the, how the aims of the divestment campaign support that. Uh, don't, don't take to absolute a position. You don't have to divest from every company that's involved in every point in the supply chain to, um, uh, to, to make a sufficient move in this direction. And, and gather the evidence. And as I said, what, once it becomes apparent that the uh, that there is that alignment of, um, of what you're trying to do with your investments and the, uh, and the aims of the divestment campaign, it becomes a very difficult case to resist. And finally, Keith. Uh, yes, I think it's engagement and accountability. So if it's your money, then you have a right to know how it's being deployed. So ask the question, engage. You know, super funds, they run surveys and ask members for their views. So make those views known. Uh, if we're talking here about the university and you're a student, for instance, you know, understanding 
who who are the trustees? Who, who is making that decision? Uh, and, and then who are the members? So you need to lobby the members to, if you don't have a direct say, I, I, I did mention, you know, but at some point you are the customer and, and there's a sort of a virtuous circle there, but just understanding the, the, the structure and how you can make your voice heard most effectively. Well, thank you very much to all of you for um, your experience and the insights that you've gained and the advice that you've provided to us at the University of Sydney and to um, those in the audience more generally. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.